If we're honest, the hidden life does not appeal to most women. The primary example, the most perfect example, of course, is the Blessed Mother. So hidden was her life in God. But I've heard that some women think that Mary is difficult to relate to, specifically because her experience of being immaculately conceived is thoroughly unique to her person. In diving into the wisdom of the hidden life, would you find it interesting to talk instead about two fictional characters, Eowyn and Arwen of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings? Is J.R.R. Tolkien the most widely read, or at least the most widely known, Catholic author ever, even in secular circles? I would put money on that. <laughs> if you haven't read The Lord of the Rings, it's worth doing, and it's worth doing many, many times over in the course of your life. While I am going to be reading very short excerpts from The Lord of the Rings throughout this episode, it isn't necessary for you to have read The Lord of the Rings to follow. I feel it fairly safe to assume that my audience has a basic familiarity with the characters of Eowyn and Arwen, courtesy of Peter Jackson's movie interpretation at the very least, and that's enough to go on. So let's start with talking about Eowyn and how she very much typifies the modern woman. You may recognize some of this conversation, which they did draw from in writing the movie script. Here are snippets from, uh, this is chapter two of book five of The Return of the King, in which Eowyn shares how she feels about the task she has been given to protect the women and children, and to eventually rule in Theoden's stead if he were to die in battle. So, here are the words she uses. She calls this task, quote, skulking in the hills, end quote. And then, when reminded by Aragorn of her duty, which she readily accepted to serve, she goes on to protest, quote, Too often have I heard of duty, but am I not of the house of Aeorl, a shield maiden and not a dry nurse? Shall I always be left behind when the riders depart, to mind the house while they win renown, to find food and beds when they return? End quote. And Tolkien tells us that Eowyn makes this protest, quote, bitterly. So right here from these few lines, we can easily deduce that Eowyn sees a woman's role as oppressive and limiting. How many of us feel like Eowyn? When she says that she is of the house of Eorl, that could easily be a woman saying that she has all these credentials, you know, that she went to school for this degree and worked for this and that company and how all of this makes her better than some common woman who might be called to tend to a husband in a home. How many modern women resent that their husband's work seems to be recognized by everyone and feel that no one sees or cares, much less appreciates their hidden work of making a home? Eowyn thinks that a man's life is the only life worth living, the only type of life in which honor and renown can be won. Here are her words to Faramir in chapter 5 of book 6 of The Return of the King, where she is healing from having vanquished the witch king of Angmar. She says, quote, I cannot lie in sloth 
idle, caged. I looked for death in battle, but I have not died, and the battle still goes on. I do not desire healing. I wish to ride to war like my brother Eomer, or better like Theoden the king, for he died and has both honor and peace. End quote. Eowyn has no concept of the sacrifices made by women who are left behind. And she certainly does not see a homemaker's life as heroic. She sees no point in being healed if it means that moving forward she gets stuck with a woman's life and a woman's role. So right now she's very reckless with her life, valuing it very little, desperate to die as long as she can die like a man. And this is very immature of her and very immature of the modern woman to feel something of the same thing, that her life is not worth living if she cannot live in a man's world, competing with men and winning the recognition that women suppose men are accustomed to receiving. Aragorn actually anticipates this immaturity several chapters back. Uh, telling the people who are tending to her that, quote, the Lady Eowyn will wish soon to rise and depart, but she should not be permitted to do so if you can in any way restrain her until at least 10 days be passed, end quote. In anticipating this immaturity and seeking to counteract it, Aragorn demonstrates that he values Eowyn's life more than she does. He doesn't want another soldier in battle. He wants that she be given every opportunity to be healed and to be made whole again. Gandalf takes some time to show that he understands the pain and sacrifice of a woman. Here's what he says to Eomer about his sister Eowyn. This is from chapter 8 of book 5 of The Return of the King. Gandalf says to Eomer, quote, She, born in the body of a maid, had a spirit and a courage at least the match of yours. End quote. So right here, Gandalf shows that he doesn't think that a woman is tasked with homemaking because she's a lesser being, a less capable being. It's not about capability. He goes on, quote, Yet she was doomed to wait upon an old man whom she loved as a father and watch him falling into a mean, dishonored dotage. And her part seemed to her more ignoble than that of the staff that he leaned on. End quote. How many modern women feel that caring for aging parents and changing babies' diapers are ignoble tasks and believe this so firmly that they put aside both parents and the idea of a family in pursuit of a career, believing, as Eowyn does, that only by living in a man's world can a woman be worth anything? Now, Tolkien is very clear um, that, that all the things that Eowyn accomplishes on the battlefield and in the service of king and country are great and beautiful things. Nowhere in the books is there a man shaking his fist at Eowyn saying, you should have stayed home and not defeated the witch king. That was our job, you know? And for, for Eowyn to have pity on Mary and bring him to the battlefield when those who were left to decide Mary's fate judged him and what he could contribute by his height. 
This is an excellent example of what John Paul the Great has talked about with regards to women bringing tenderness and compassion to a workplace. But the nuance of Eowyn's struggle to appreciate and eventually embrace her femininity is something that the movies pretty much fail to communicate. And what I want to put forward for your consideration in examining the character of Eowyn is that her disdain for the genius of authentic femininity, her lack of understanding of woman's inherent strength, is the reason for and the source of so much of her struggling and grief, the reason for her inner turmoil. She thinks that the only way to live is to show that she's as good as any man and can hold her own in a man's world. She asks point blank, quote, what renown is there, end quote, in the life, in the hidden life, I should say, of women. And again, her accomplishments are not sins. They are honorable and excellent accomplishments. She helped to save the world by vanquishing the witch king. But she has this thought that her accomplishments are what give her her worth. And you see this where you see her um, thinking that her accomplishments should be able to win a man's heart, any man of her choosing. So we see her, she sets her sights on Aragorn and initially scorns Faramir's attentions because she believes that as a shield maiden, she is above receiving attentions from a man whom she would not have chosen for herself. But her accomplishments did not win Aragorn's heart. And her accomplishments are not what wins Faramir's heart either. In chapter 5 of book 6 of The Return of the King, Eowyn and Faramir interact on multiple occasions. In the first interaction, Eowyn is demanding to be allowed to leave the Houses of Healing so that she can ride to war. Tolkien describes Eowyn's words as proud. Eowyn and Faramir go back and forth, and basically, Eowyn, you know, she's here... Uh, demanding to be released. And Faramir is trying to reason with her, trying to be logical and give her logical reasons as to why, even if she did go, it's too late for her to travel so far and catch up with the rest of the army. Eowyn, while she is making demands, is trying to speak with the authority and bearing of a man. This is a contest of wills, and she has set hers against Faramir's. So when she speaks to Faramir as a man with demands and orders, Faramir responds to Eowyn as a man speaking to a man, having recourse to reason and intellect, being straightforward with her and meeting her on her terms of not pitying her, not sugarcoating anything for her, and not going out of his way to be particularly tender with her, because by her masculine manner of speaking, what she's communicating to him is that she doesn't want him to treat her like a woman. She wants to be treated as a fellow soldier. But of course, that backfires because Faramir isn't stupid. He's not going to permit her or anyone under his jurisdiction, man and woman alike, to throw their life away so irresponsibly. But suddenly there's a shift that happens in the course of 
this first dialogue between Eowyn and Faramir, and this I will read, beginning with Faramir's last rational response to the demanding masculine Eowyn. It is too late, lady, to follow the captains, even if you had the strength, said Faramir. But death in battle may come to us all yet, willing or unwilling. You will be better prepared to face it in your own manner if while there is still time you do as the healer commanded. You and I, we must endure with patience the hours of waiting. She did not answer, but as he looked at her it seemed to him that something in her softened, as though a bitter frost were yielding at the first faint presage of spring. A tear sprang in her eye and fell down her cheek, like a glistening raindrop. Her proud head drooped a little. Then quietly, more as if speaking to herself than to him. But the healers would have me lie abed seven days yet, she said, and my window does not look eastward. Her voice was now that of a maiden, young and sad. Faramir smiled, though his heart was filled with pity. Your window does not look eastward, he said. That can be amended. In this I will command the warden. If you will stay in this house in our care, lady, and take your rest, then you shall walk in this garden in the sun as you will, and you shall look east, whither all our hopes have gone. So this shift that happens, again, when Eowyn is speaking to Faramir in a commanding, authoritative, masculine manner, he responds man to man. But when her demeanor changes, and Tolkien is very clear about that change, he says, quote, her voice was now that of a maiden, young and sad, end quote. Then Faramir's manner changes towards her. Now he can respond as a man to a woman. When she is vulnerable and undemanding, he responds with tenderness. She has requested nothing, but he seeks to do something for her, something that instead of being told that this is what she wants from him, he has the opportunity to offer something to her that he's thought of on his own. Eowyn, it seems, <laughs> realizes that she has been vulnerable and backpedals. <laughs> she warns him against herself, telling him that she is ungentle. And then their interactions go on, Faramir trying to be gentle, trying to coax out her womanliness, and Eowyn puts up a fight right to the very last. Even when she's on the brink of accepting his love, she says to him, quote, would you have your proud folk say of you, there goes a lord who tamed a wild shield maiden of the north. Was there no woman of the race of Numenor to choose? End quote. Right up to the end, she struggles terribly with relinquishing her foolish ideas, and she does state this. She says, quote, I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor vie with the great riders, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer and love all things that grow and are not barren, end quote. 
Eowyn's entire life leading up to this taming of the shield maiden by Faramir can be characterized by one word. Competition. She is competing with everyone. She's competing with men, obviously, trying to be a man in a man's world. And when she meets Aragorn, she finds herself competing with Arwen, <laughs> whether or not she realizes or acknowledges that. Faramir sees right through Eowyn, and so does Aragorn, for that matter. But it's clear from Eowyn's language that she holds the lifestyle of women like Arwen, the hidden life of women, in contempt. And so she does not understand how a woman whose lifestyle she considers to be beneath her could possibly offer more to the Lord Aragorn than herself with all of her manly achievements to match his. A side note here that the one place where they did capture this in the movies, and I don't believe that it was intentional, but when it's shown that Eowyn can't cook, there's so much revealed in that. She has spent so much time training with a sword, but she has clearly spent zero time training with a kitchen knife. When I was talking through this point with my husband, he commented that, uh, wasn't it interesting that all of a sudden she's trying to impress Aragorn with a woman's skill? You know, like she didn't go and set up hay bales and invite Aragorn to join her for target practice. <laughs> all of a sudden, very likely without realizing what was happening within herself, Aragorn made her want to show her ability to fulfill what is traditionally a woman's task, cooking, which again, clearly up until that point, she had scorned and thus ends up failing completely. And poor Aragorn has to be incredibly chivalrous and pretend to like the soup. In that one moment, I will give the movies credit for capturing the reality of the modern woman as represented by Eowyn, that here is a grown woman who is so very accomplished in so many ways, in, in so many good ways. But because of her contempt for woman's God-given role, is utterly lacking in those skills which would make her a good wife, the woman of Proverbs 31. And on that note, in The Fellowship of the Ring, when the Fellowship leaves Lothlorien and are given cloaks which shield them from unfriendly eyes. Here's what one of the elves has to say about that. This is from chapter 8 of book 2 of the Fellowship of the Ring. The context of what I'm about to read is that um, it's a response to a question from Pippin asking if the cloaks they were given were magic cloaks. So here's the response. I do not know what you mean by that, answered the leader of the elves. They are fair garments, and the web is good, for it was made in this land. They are elvish robes, certainly, if that is what you mean. Leaf and branch, water and stone, they have the hue and the beauty of all these things under the twilight of Lorien that we love, for we put the thought of all we love into all that we make. Yet they are garments, not armor, and they will not turn shaft or blade, but they should serve you well, 
They are light to wear and warm enough or cool enough at need, and you will find them a great aid in keeping out of the sight of unfriendly eyes, whether you walk among the stones or the trees. You are indeed in high favor of the lady, for she herself and her maidens wove this stuff, and never before have we clad strangers in the garb of our own people. Those last two sentences especially are the ones that I want to highlight for you. It was considered a high honor to be clothed in this stuff, which was handmade by Galadriel and her handmaids. You see this highlighting of what is traditionally considered women's work, the work of weaving cloth and sewing garments. It's clear that this work is highly valued. And then in a part of the book, which is unfortunately omitted from the movies, uh, the way that Aragorn reveals himself to the masses as the heir to the throne of Gondor is by flying a standard, which is a type of a banner or a flag, if you will. And this standard bore the signs specific to his lineage. But I share this because the standard was made by Arwen. Again, a woman's work. And Tolkien takes time to describe Arwen's work in detail. This is from chapter six of book five of The Return of the King. Quote, Behold, upon the foremost ship a great standard broke, and the wind displayed it as she turned towards the Harland. There flowered a white tree, and that was for Gondor. But seven stars were about it, and the high crown above it, the signs of Elendil, that no lord had borne for years beyond count. And the stars flamed in the sunlight, for they were wrought of gems by Arwen, daughter of Elrond, and the crown was bright in the morning, for it was wrought of mithril and gold. End quote. Now, isn't it interesting how these works of women's hands are highly valued by men, but not by Eowyn. What Eowyn does not understand, and what so many modern women do not understand, is that men value women who are authentically feminine, who embrace God's designs for woman, because God designed man to love his designs for woman. Watching and waiting and keeping faith may not be of great renown in the world, but the man whose heart is in the care of a godly woman testifies on her behalf in all of his deeds, with his children, with his co-workers, with how he handles the cares of the world. The heart of his woman shines in and through his response to his God-given tasks. Eowyn does not understand Arwen's strength. To be separated from her beloved, to not know what he faces, but being brave and keeping faith. Arwen is Aragorn's source of strength, much as the Blessed Mother was Christ's. You know, ladies, men, <laughs> men 
do not want to step from the battlefield of the world into another battlefield in their home. Men want a home which is a haven for them. Have you ever really thought about what it means when we call the home our domestic church? Often our musings only go so far as recognizing the man as head and pastor of the domestic church. But if the domestic church is supposed to mirror, to parallel the universal church, we forget so easily that the most holy sacrament, the most holy sacrifice of the mass, is mirrored, is paralleled in the sacrament of matrimony, which we live day in and day out 24-7 from the moment we exchange our vows. It is ongoing in the same way that the celebration of the mass goes on worldwide and spans the ages so that it is one sacrifice, one celebration, that the union of Christ with his creation through our reception of the Eucharist is mirrored and paralleled by the conjugal embrace between spouses. And that in the same way that when we say that when we go to Mass, we are experiencing a foretaste of heaven, so too the domestic church should be a foretaste of heaven. And as a married woman, this is your domain. This is your job to make the domestic church a foretaste of heaven for all who abide within it. This is the garden which was given to your care. And this is what Eowyn does not understand or appreciate. When Aragorn has completed his long trial, his toiling and laboring, he wants to come home to a woman who is for him a soft and safe place to land. Arwen is very hidden. She gets considerably more screen time than actual book time. <laughs> but Arwen has the heart of the king in her keeping. The man who unites and brings peace to Middle-earth. I interrupted our series on living the serenity prayer to deliver this episode because I felt that it was necessary to lay a foundation for why we have to be so detailed in our upcoming episodes about disrespectful behavior in marriage. It is, you see, a normal thing for the church to have to continually clarify its teachings as various unprecedented incidents in conflict with its teaching arise. A great example of this is embryonic stem cell research. Catholics who are very well catechized might be able to say, well, of course this is forbidden according to the teaching of the church on the sanctity of human life. But someone not very well catechized or not very learned in science or perhaps just coming into the church may not be able to come reasonably to that conclusion on their own. It is better for them to have the clarification, the explicitness. Another example is St. Thomas Aquinas uh, thinking that a soul is bestowed upon an embryo 40 days after conception. 
because we now know more in both the sciences of biology and theology, the church has clarified that the soul comes into existence at the moment of conception. That doesn't negate Aquinas' sainthood or his intelligence. It simply acknowledges the limitations of his time, especially with regards to science. We needed the clarity, however. It was the responsibility of the church to clarify. A third example is the practice of adopting frozen embryos. And you have good people on both sides of the argument, and the church is still struggling, as far as I know, to give an answer. The question being, the practice of creating embryos via test tube and freezing them is obviously condemned. And at the same time, we believe that each of those embryos has a soul and a right to live a full life and die a natural death. So destroying them is murder. But then for us to adopt them, while we can easily argue that we are saving their lives, we can also argue that adopting them only furthers the market for frozen emb embryos. This is a huge dilemma, again, to my knowledge, unresolved. I don't know the answer. Um, but I, I bring up these examples of the church needing to clarify her teachings because when I talk about respect in marriage and give more recently uh, developed resources for learning about respect in marriage, one of the objections that I've come up against for many wives in every generation is that it should be enough for us to learn about respect in marriage by reading sources from saints and scholars who lived and wrote prior to a certain year. Some say pre-Vatican II, some go much farther back into the 1800s. And I understand what they're saying, that one would expect instructive writings from prior to the sexual revolution to be sound with regards to presenting an accurate understanding of the biblical wife and her role. But similarly to how we cannot just assume that anyone and everyone would know instinctively that embryonic stem cell research is intrinsically evil, with regards to wifely respect in marriage, we have unprecedented mental blockers <laughs> that exist in the current generation. And that writings from saints and scholars before a certain time period would not have thought to address because it wasn't a problem that existed. So for example, it's a wonderful thing, it is a wonderful thing that women are now able to work and are respected and valued in the workplace. But when women first started to work, it was to help out their families. It was in service of their families. It was because there was no other way to feed the kids. Men were coming home maimed and crippled from the war, for example, and being completely unable to take on any type of physical work. And that meant that mothers and children didn't have any choice but to work or their whole family would starve. But work at that time was seen as a necessity in service of the existing family unit. And that is not what women see work as now. Now, they see work as an alternative to a family. Now, a career is even preferred 
to having a family, you see? And so even though what the church teaches remains the same, its application to unprecedented situations is an ongoing work. If you limit yourself to reading saints and scholars who lived prior to the Industrial Revolution, they won't talk about the dangers and temptations which opportunities for education and work present specifically to women, tempting them to reject their fertility, to seek to selfishly control it, to never make a gift of themselves to another human being. If you limit yourself to reading materials from a time when that was unthinkable, then you won't have the clarity of language to address the current generation for whom those temptations and dangers exist. So when in our next episode, which will be part two of uh, Living the Serenity Prayer, we give examples of disrespectful behavior, we have to take the torch, so to speak, and keep running with it because we're looking at behaviors that are common now which were either very uncommon or even unthinkable at some earlier point in time. If we're limiting ourselves to reading things from that earlier point in time and expecting it to be instructive enough for the current generation of married persons, then, I mean, if that were true, then we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in, would we? We have to acknowledge that some of the mess is not necessarily because people aren't reading the right things, but because that sometimes even the right things don't say enough for whatever reason, like having been written before a certain major societal shift in the history of the world. So going back to Eowyn and her entire struggle to embrace femininity being characterized by competition. We are in an unprecedented age where women, and and please do understand that I'm speaking generally with an American audience in mind, Um, women spend all of their formative years in competition with everyone. And thus, so much of the modern woman's disrespectful behavior in marriage, even among well-formed Catholics, is due to the fact that women don't know how to drop the competition at the door and submit to the authority of a husband. They probably haven't even heard that this is something which they will need to do. And this is hard enough for stay-at-home wives who, unless they married at a fairly young pre-career age, shall we say, have a history of competition which they then have to renounce upon entering the married state in order to create a happy home, how much more difficult and not instinctual (laughs) then is it for working wives? Wives who are still actively competing in the world outside of their home. For them, it does not come naturally or instinctively um, to leave their work self at the door. And again, women having a work self versus a home self is an unprecedented situation. As undeniably wonderful as women's contributions have been to society through the workforce, we cannot ignore the fact that men's ability to compartmentalize 
is part of the masculine genius which makes for a happy home. And that we as women were created by God to not be split. To not force ourselves to have a split personality. That we as women were created to be able to pour ourselves entirely into a single focus. That we were not designed to compartmentalize. For us women, everything's connected, isn't it? And the compartmentalizing of men is is so highly criticized by women when the reality is that their ability to do so is a gift from God. And our ability as women to see how everything is connected, literally everything, (laughs) is God's gift to us and his gift to our husbands and his gift to our children, his gift to the whole world. We become overburdened and overtaxed and overwhelmed when we reject that feminine genius and give ourselves a cross which God never designed us to bear. We women were not created to be in constant competition with everyone and everything. We were created to draw all things to ourself and bring all things into harmony. That is one way of expressing our God-given role as keepers and cultivators of culture in the home. Last week we talked about how light our burdens become when we stop trying to control those things which God never gave us the authority to control in the first place. There's so much that we can learn from Eowyn's struggles. She is the perfect example of that truth that a woman's accomplishments in the world can be incredible and good and of great renown and at the same time how much those objectively good accomplishments can be the primary source or catalyst of suffering in marriage where a woman must be a woman in order to be happy and to have a happy and holy marriage, must make consistent and excellent use of those talents which God has specifically given to her to carry out her task as helpmate. You know, you you spend all of your formative years and probably several years into adulthood in the extremely competitive arenas of both education and the workforce. And then to enter marriage and to be called then to humble yourself daily before a man who may not be as learned or as competent or as experienced as you in various areas of life, but whom God has clothed with authority over you nonetheless. That's the thing, is that your resume doesn't determine any sort of exemption status for you as a wife with regards to the command to submit to your husband's authority. The other hugely unprecedented struggle which we must now speak into because it exists is that of having parents who are not living biblical marriages. When Pope Pius Twelfth gave his address to newlyweds in June, of 1942 entitled um, Estrangement of Hearts. 
the stuff of which was that our obligations to our spouse do not contradict our obligations to our parents. I'm afraid to say that the world has moved so much since that address in a bad direction, such that too many young Catholic women are finding that cleaving to their spouse means standing up to their poorly formed parents where standing for and protecting their marriage means limiting contact or cutting off their parents. And given that their parents' behavior warrants this, of course it means that these parents are not understanding of or respectful of their child's marriage, and specifically of their son-in-law's headship. I am very, very blessed to not be speaking from experience in this regard. My parents have always emphasized my responsibility and my legitimate need to cleave ever more firmly and unconditionally to my husband. But I hear from many women where this is not the case, where women are disrespectful towards their husbands and consequently disrespectful towards their sons-in-law. And they've already given their daughter such a horrible example that when a brave young woman wakes up to this fact that she was not trained in the home to be a holy and submissive wife, she has to fight herself. She has to fight her tendencies and habits and mannerisms and attitudes formed from childhood on top of having to fight for her marriage against her family. And if she's not so young and she's trying to turn around a desperate situation where her husband has become accustomed to disrespect from both herself and his mother-in-law, she then has to go out of her way to protect her husband, to guard her husband, to prove to her husband that he comes first. It's one thing if a husband hasn't been properly prioritized and respected for the first year or two of marriage. It's quite another matter when a husband has not been a wife's first priority for the last 10 or 15 or 20 years of marriage. And then because fathers-in-law are not accustomed to being respected by their own wives, they are of no support or assistance to their son-in-law. I've heard from suffering daughters whose parents think that their son-in-law has somehow coerced or manipulated their daughter into what's actually a proper Catholic submission, which they, they just don't understand. And they end up criminalizing their son-in-law, refusing to believe that their daughter is making changes of her own volition because she has come to firmly desire to be a saintly wife and to do her part to make a holy marriage. The consequences of sin are ugly, ugly, ugly. I mean, how sad is it that one of the reasons we have to nitpick about wifely respect is that the overwhelming majority of women in the current generation did not learn that these behaviors are unacceptable from their mother's example. Well, ladies, this was a pretty long episode. <laughs> compared to previous ones. And if you've made it through this entire episode, I thank you for staying with me and indulging my attempts at select Middle Earth exegesis. So we will be diving into disrespectful behaviors in part two 
of living the serenity prayer. In the meantime, have a blessed week. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm -hmm.